You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Opal Tometi, one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter, joins the Post to discuss the work being done in the U.S. and across the world to dismantle structural racism and injustice. Let's listen. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm Karen Atia, and I am the Global Opinions Editor for the Washington Post, and welcome to Washington Post Live. Um, Today, I'm here to welcome one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Movement, the founder of Africa, of Diaspora Rising, excuse me, human rights advocate, um, and just to name a few of her, this is just a few of her accomplishments and bona fides, but this is Opal Tometi, and I just want to thank you so much for, for being here. I'm so glad we could do this. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to join you. Great. Well, there's so much to talk about. We only have 30 minutes. I'm going to do my best. Um, but I want to just start off, you know, this conversation, which I want to be, you know, free flowing and 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 to be, you know, natural and, and to speak what's what's on your heart. Um, and I just wanted to start off with um, I came across a profile of you in the Guardian um, by Ellen Jones, and the first graph uh, said, and I'll just read it very quickly. Maybe Opal Tometi is not the image of a great U.S. civil rights leader that lives in your head. For a start, she's not an austere man in the dark suit. Uh, she's a 36-year-old woman who laughed uh, in Pilates gear, who laughs often. She doesn't need the sonorous tones of a Southern Baptist preacher to make her point. She's got social media. And with Nigerian-born parents, her ancestors were not amongst those enslaved and transported across the Atlantic. Yet, as one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter, Opal Tometi has helped to reignite the civil rights movement. There's so much to unpack in just that description of you, including the obvious reference to Martin Luther King and this image that we have of what it means to be a civil rights leader. Um, and I want to get into unpack all of that through the biggest conversation, but I want to just even just go back to like the beginning for you with Black Lives Matters and to help so that we can understand this moment that we've seen in 2020. Um, so can you like very briefly, like take us back to 2013, you know, you already an activist and organizer in Arizona and, and tell us about your decision to register blacklivesmatters.com. What was going through your mind when you decided to do that? Yeah, gosh, so much. So in 2013, I was actually in New York. I was living in Brooklyn, New York. I was the executive director for the national, uh, sorry, the first national immigrant rights organization called the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. I had the privilege of serving in that capacity and, and leading alongside so many amazing people on my team. And I was already doing explicitly Black work, right? Black organizing across the country. And so I felt very privileged. I felt very you know, committed to the mandate of advancing Black lives. Um, But it was clear to me that in 2013, when I heard that George Zimmerman was being acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin, that something woefully unjust um, and, you know, just immoral was taking place. And it was something that was being witnessed and experienced by people not only in this country, but around the world. You know, people were watching George Zimmerman's trial on TV, and it felt as though Trayvon Martin was actually on trial. And I remember mm. 
hearing the testimonies, seeing everything transpire, and often just reflecting on my youngest brother. I have two younger brothers. My, my baby brother at the time was 14 years old, so three years younger than, than Trayvon Martin. And all I could think is that he's going to have to hear the story, inevitably, right? He's inevitably going to be impacted by this news, and that he would hear that the outcome was that George Zimmerman was found not guilty, like that this jury could not find anything um, substantively wrong in the case, and that this the man who stalked and killed a teenage boy in his own community, a teenage boy armed with nothing less than, or nothing more than a bag of Skittles and, you know, Arizona iced tea uh, and, you know, wearing a hoodie was okay, right? That, that, that this was going to be okay and this was going to be the story that people would hear. And for me, like I said, I was already working in Black communities, already organizing, but hearing this not guilty verdict, essentially, this acquittal, um, I knew that something more needed to be done. And quite honestly, the day that I heard about this story, I had just watched the film called Fruitvale Station. So the story of Oscar Grant, an unarmed black man who was killed on New Year's Day in Oakland and, by police. And I just watched that film, walked out of the film with a fellow friend who was also a community organizer, stood on the street corner, opened my phone, got the texts and the tweets saying that this happened, right, that George Zimmerman was acquitted, and I was shook. You know, I yeah. was hurt. I was it had a visceral reaction. Like, so you did too, right? Yeah, so if you get, so then why, why, with all that energy, was it just like a spur of the moment, like, I'm going to register a website? Like, that was, that was what first just came to your head? No, what came to my head was that people needed to know that this not guilty verdict, this acquittal, was not the end of the story and that we could actually do something about it. That was what came to my head was, I want to get more people involved in community organizing. And I know organizers across the country, so why not figure out how to um, invite people into this moment, invite people into an ongoing movement for racial justice and equity, um, that's what I was thinking. And so I went to social media, saw Alicia Garza, fellow co-founder of Black Lives Matter, saw her Facebook post, which essentially read as though it were like a love note, you know, said something like, you know, Black people, I love us, you know, our lives matter. And then Patrice Cullors, who I actually didn't know at the time, um, but soon got, you know, got to meet her later, she did a hashtag within the Facebook post, right, or within the comment section. And mind you, seven years ago, people aren't really doing hashtags on Facebook, but I saw it. And as somebody who was already doing Black organizing, it, it resonated with me in a very profound way. It was very simple. It was an invitation, yet it was also a demand. Um, and for whatever reason, it quite literally hit my spirit. And I called Alicia the next day. I quite literally called her and said, not sure what the plan is with this, but I think we need to do it. We need to build for real, for real. We're all organizers across the country. So we need to encourage other people to join because we this work is is too great for just, you know, just us. We need to invite more people into this movement. And of course she agreed. And I said, you know, I have my background, I have a master's in communications, I've been, you know, doing communications work for social movements for many years. And so 
was like, I can just buy the domain. I can build us a quick little site. I could use a Tumblr. I could do that. You know, like I can kind of do those things and get us set up and, you know, launch our social media. I'll invite the organizers we know to start using, you know, the Black Lives Matter hashtag and start amplifying our work. Really start telling yeah. the story of what we're all doing to ensure that Black people matter in this country. I, I love I love what you've said about, um, and it's perhaps the most clearest and concise thing that I've heard about Black Lives Matter. It's both an invitation and a demand. Um, and of course, since since 2013, um, we have seen so many hashtags. Of course, uh, Mike Brown in, in Ferguson in 2014. I mean, the list is endless almost at this point. Philando Castile, um, Freddie Gray, so many that have captured national um, attention. Um, but seven years later, George Floyd, uh, this summer um, or, or earlier earlier in this year, has mobilized not only you know Americans to get out of the street under Black Lives Matters, but the entire world, right? And so I would just love to know. I mean, what have let's just what have the last six seven months been like behind the scenes um, for you? Gosh, the last few months have been bananas, right? It has been incredible to see that the entire world is now paying attention to what is happening with Black people. You know, yes, you know, in the United States, but folks are also acutely aware that Black people across the world are actually facing a great deal of types of hardships um, and so on. And so what it's looked like for me, um, and I think you know, for the movement has been, we're, we're seeing that there are people from all walks of life who, despite you know, a pandemic that is impacting people, health, economically and, and beyond, um, the reality was that they saw that black people are faced with multiple types of pandemics that are going on within our communities and, and pre-existing condition, right, pre-existing context of racism in the U.S. And that despite this pandemic that would ha you would think that people could stay in their homes, people could, you know, be with their families, people could, you know, do, be doing things that could protect themselves. Instead, we're still being faced with anti-Black racism and anti-Black violence specifically that is killing us, right, that is, that is quite lethal and it's, you know, it shows up in the ways of the pandemic numbers, but specifically people were moved to get involved and get into the streets because they saw a black man being killed in the streets, you know, while people watched. And we were all traumatized, right? We were yeah. all traumatized and, and moved to, to action. And so while there have been a lot of people who might not have been in the streets with us over the years, they realized that they're opting out or thinking that they had nothing to do with this or that apathy or kind of indifference was um, an option. They recognize that, no, 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 this thing is not going to stop unless I get involved. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you see the largest mobilizations in, in history, which is yeah. a real testament to, to people, not just like a clever hashtag or something like that, but it's real people, you know, getting in touch with humanity and their feelings and being willing to put some skin in the game. So, I mean, like I said, there have been so many 
Uh, and, and again, we're talking about police brutality specifically, and we know that structural racism is, is not just that, but you know, for the purposes of this part of the conversation, we want to focus on that. Again, there have been so many videos, there have been so many hashtags. Um, in your opinion, what do you think was different about George Floyd that really felt like a tipping point? I honestly feel that what was different was that we watched, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, a man being murdered, you know, with another human being's body, quite literally crushing them to death. And while we were already sitting with a certain amount of grief and instability within our own lives, you know, from home or, you know, the people are essential workers that, you know, they were sitting or they're engaged in their work. Um, but there was something about witnessing a man being killed in that manner that unleashed our sense of righteous rage. Mm -hmm. and, and rightfully so, like we should be outraged. In the 21st century, to, to witness such a thing that we thought um, lynchings were over, we thought that this should not be happening. And yet, we essentially witnessed that in broad daylight in the year 2020. And mm -hmm. I think that was a moment that changed everything for, for our, our nation, but of course it set people all across the world um, into uh, also righteous rage alongside us. They were joining and are joining in solidarity with us because they, are, they too are concerned with what is mm -hmm. happening with black people. Why is this violence against black people continuing to persist? Why is this the status quo in the United States? Yeah, I, 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 you talked a lot about, you know, this time it seemed a lot of people um, had woken up, right, and, and seen, you know, what, again, what Black people have been saying literally um, for generations about the violence um, against, against us uh, and other people of color as well. Um, I wanted to, to to press you a little bit, a little bit about like, I would say what a lot of us were worried about in, in many ways when we saw this outpouring of response and awareness and, you know, allyship. Um, I, I'm sure you remember the sort of Black Tile Tuesday, many influencers and brands and companies blacked out their Instagram squares and Twitter, you know, in solidarity of, of Black people and activists were, were saying, don't do that. You know, that's actually, you know, harming the cause, which is visibility of black people. And I just, I just, I think that there were a lot, there was a lot of concern that this was going to be uh, uh, an energy that would fade out. Yeah. And so do you feel, you know, since, you know, we've had all sorts of initiatives and promises and diversity and promises from um, brands, you know, white people to do better, but do you think this has been sustained or do you feel like it was just kind of, you know, anti-racism was a summer trend and now we're back to regular programming? Quite honestly, this is something that I grapple with and I've been in deep conversation with organizers and other you know, types of leaders uh, across the country about whether or not this is truly sustainable and whether or not this kind of infusion of activism and, and solidarity is going to prove to have sustained you know, recourse. And I'll say this, as a, as a community organizer, as a leader, as somebody who 
has tried to agitate and inspire and encourage people to get involved in community organizing, the participation has been encouraging. I have genuinely appreciated the various ways in which people have shown up. Some practices are more impactful um, than others. And while I can't judge whether or not people are genuine or what their motivations might be, the fact of the matter is that we as a nation and we, you know, people around the world need to be talking about anti-Black racism, period. We not only need to be talking about it, we need to be making plans of action to transform our societies so that we don't continue to see the types of degradation um, of Black people that we continue to experience. So my, my sense of that has been, I know that there are people who are pushing different institutions. I know that there are people who are working both within and outside, attempting to engage in different types of strategies in order to get the types of gains and, and justice that our communities deserve. And my, my philosophy is, I welcome most of it. <laughs> I welcome most of it. And I also encourage people to not only talk, but they need to walk the talk, right? They need to put real dollars, real programming, real investment into Black communities, into Black people, if it's in their companies or in their sector, like that needs to happen. That is a must. We have to have substance along with these symbolic, you know, maybe statements and imagery. We need to make sure that behind the scenes that those changes within institutions are actually happening. That's going to be the real deciding factor for me as to whether or not any of those kinds of calls or black tiles or whatever it might have been um, truly matter. Yeah. I, I speaking of, of substance, um, which is a which is an important question. Um, one thing that has come out of the summer with the George Floyd situation has been um, serious calls uh, to defund police. We're now looking at a, a different discourse around around policing and what might have been radical. Uh, this idea of, of defunding the police, even, you know, several years ago is now very, very much in the mainstream. So I'd like to ask, you know, you, um, do you think that defunding the police is a necessary step for dismantling systemic racism? Yes, I absolutely believe that you know, defunding the police is fundamental and essential. Um, when we look at our budgets, these are documents that are that are moral. Right, they are. They share with you know the public what our values are. Do you value education or your healthcare system or military or police? Um, and they dictate how we quite literally um, manage and govern. And so yes, I think the reallocation of taxpayer dollars to solutions that truly work for all of us is absolutely paramount. And the fact of the matter is that we've seen you know, year in, year out, you know, day in or day out, week in, week out, that Black people continue to bear the brunt of excessive police force, of hyper-policing of our neighborhoods, and we can no longer be the victims of this terrible, you know, experiment. 
you know, we have been talking about this. We've been rallying. We've been protesting for generations. You know, yeah. I, and I can't help but think about all the other families and the people whose names we don't even know that have endured this, this outright violence and, you know, loss of life and family members who are no longer going to be, you know, at their dinner table or, or so on. So this is, this to me is, is paramount. The fact of the matter is that resources that are allocated to communities should be used in a way that respects the people that it's supposed to serve, um, that mm -hmm. looks at a myriad of solutions. And the truth is that we have ideas that have yet to be funded. We have ideas on how to address certain concerns in our communities. And we know that the safest communities are the communities that have the most resources. And Black communities end up not having those types of resources and end up being uh, made vulnerable, right? Created to be vulnerable. And we have police forces that are sent in and, and essentially are, are acting in a way that is continuing to criminalize RB4. And mm -hmm. it leaves people vulnerable. And so, yeah. yes, we, we have to reallocate funds. We need to reallocate those funds to uh, programs that keep us safe, like education, like mental health services, like the healthcare system, and, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think this is uh, this is something that has has been a fascinating facet to watch. Um, I know there's so I, much I to talk just say one more quick thing about it. Do you mind? Sorry. I just want to say one more quick thing about it, if you don't mind. Sure. It's been a while. I want to move yeah. to this uh, question. Mm -hmm. Okay, for sure. I mean, this is the thing. So, like, I was organizing in New York. I was telling you, um, and. As a leader, I kept getting asked the question, you know, why do we continue to see Black people being killed by police? And when we kept coming back to it, it was the fact that we were being hyper-police. Uh, about six years ago, myself, along with a number of amazing organizers in New York, created a, a campaign called Safety Beyond Policing that was essentially begging this question and saying, why is NYPD getting $100 million more in the wake of the, of the murder of Eric Garner to you know, they're getting $100 million to hire a thousand new police officers when we know that the people don't want that, uh, that we're already being hyper-policed, that the NYPD is, is resourced to an excessive amount and have militarized, uh, military-grade equipment, and it just didn't make any sense. And to me, and, and to any organizer or any thinking person, some of these things just don't make sense. <laughs> when you continue right. to have the same challenges come up time and time again, it's like, different solution. Let's, let's stop that. Let's right. move and, and try something yeah. else. Absolutely. So I'd like to bring in um, an audience question, and this will this will get to maybe you know, and we don't have a ton of time left, but like to get to um, the question of the elections, right? So William Harris from Oregon asks, "Do you think elections are the best mechanism to deal with structural racism?" And if you can keep the answer maybe a little uh, short, um, so I'd love to hear what you have to say. Go vote, they say. <laughs> they, they do say that. Um, I think they are part of the solution, right? I do think, you know, you do need to vote your values. You do need to engage in those systems that do have power and influence. I think we'd be remiss if we, we stepped away and, and didn't get involved in that. And I know a lot of times um, 
even as, as movements and as organizers, sometimes we shy away from engaging in electoral politics, but I was so moved with how, you know, the movement for Black Lives, the broader kind of racial justice movement really took um, the call to get involved in this election cycle. And we clearly made a tremendous difference and it's been amazing and inspiring to see. But of course, we know that this is just one small battle in a much larger war <laughs> to stop violence against Black people. So um, I think it's one, one facet. It is clearly not the only facet to the work. The work is, is cultural, it's policy, it's, it's so multifaceted. I, I wouldn't want anybody to think that uh, you can vote away <laughs> racism. Clearly, Black Lives Matter started uh, with a Black president, right, in office. So to say that it's just, you know, one person or a few people in leadership that's going to change the very um, kind of roots of this nation is, I think, disingenuous and it's really short-sighted. However, we must take any uh, tool or any strategy that might help contribute to this larger uh, struggle for having a democracy that really works for all of us and respects uh, our diversity. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, and I wanted to jump quickly overseas um, in, in talking about police brutality uh, uh, overseas. Um, you know, you are Nigerian American. You've also started a uh, an organization called Diaspora Rising, and you frequently write and talk about um, how a lot of these issues that affect um, Black people in the U.S. also, um, you know, similar issues in Europe, um, and just this uh, consciousness about the sort of Black African world. Um, can you, and maybe I'll just briefly, you know, just say to the audience that basically Nigeria itself has been going through um, a in uprising in many ways against a pretty brutal uh, police force called SARS, a special anti-robbery um, squad. And uh, you've been engaged as well um, in that. So can you talk very briefly about what you see as, as the parallels, you know, as, as America has taken to the streets against police brutality, as Nigerians are also seeing historic uh, historic uprisings against, you know, their form of police brutality. What do you see as the commonalities and what uh, we can take away from, from both of these movements this year? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you raised this, you know, question because I do see so many commonalities. Maybe it's because of my perspective as a Nigerian American, but I think just as a Black person, period, as we um, look what's happening around the world and particularly in Nigeria, it's clear that poor, slightly poor Black folks, um, and even middle-class Black folks in, in that country are being targeted you know, by this police unit. Um, and the types of, of violence that people were experiencing from you know, extortion to sexual assault to outright murder was the status quo of this special squad and, and quite honestly other units of, of the Nigerian police. So I, I don't want to just kind of act as if it's, it's solely that, right? The calls are for end police brutality, period. Um, and I see one, the frequency in which it happens is is quite, it's, it's more in Nigeria. However, the um, the type of acuteness is, is comparable to what's happening in, in the US. Um, I see the types of uprisings as absolutely you know, similar to what we experience here 
in uh, the United States with the BLM uprisings and, and the mobilizations. And to be quite honest, I see the backlash being quite comparable as well. Um, yeah. So not only are we seeing just you know, the root causes, right? Poor governance, uh, bad and, and poor decision-making around the distribution of resources and wealth in that country, which is very similar to what's happening right here in the US, but also the outcome of that, right? So the outcome being that people speak up. They continue to mm -hmm. protest. People have been protesting SARS against SARS for years. Um, they right. reformed, right. quote unquote, for years. And now we have these massive mobilizations. We see the tear gas. We see the brutality mm -hmm. that um, has taken place. So quite similar to what we've experienced here. I don't want folks to think that it's, oh my God, you know, what's happening in Africa is, is divorced from or more appalling than what's been happening here in the United States. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I know we're we're almost out of time, which is you know speaking of criminal, which is criminal. There's so much more to to talk about. But I want to ask like more of a personal um, question for my for my last question of you. Um, as an activist, I mean we've heard stories of activists who have really suffered, who've burnt out from this work. Um, how do you, as as a, 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 an activist, um, sustain yourself? And, and can you talk just even about like what you do to keep yourself safe as you do this work? Yeah, thanks for that question. And I can't believe we're almost done as well. Um, honestly, being an activist in this time is, is difficult. There never has been, a, you know, there hasn't been a time when we've had so much you know, outright support. Yet at the same time, we see real calls for violence and, and targeting of, of people like myself and, of course, you know, other activists across the movement. And so it has been extremely nerve wracking. Um, it has been scary at times because there are real death threats. Um, I have over the years had to, to relocate and, and make other types of decisions um, in order to keep myself safe and my loved ones safe. Uh, and so that there is, that's real. So while we might get awards and applause and all of that, there are also you know, real consequences to speaking up. Um, however, I would never change a thing. I know I'm on the right side of history. I know that all of us who are involved are on the right side of history, so I won't shy away. Um, and it won't deter me from speaking out and, and, and organizing. However, the way that I deal with it is by being in real community, right? I know that despite what attacks I might get or if something were to sat like if something were to actually happen to me, I know that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are also doing the work. And so we are, you know, almost more safe than we've ever been because we don't have the type of leadership model that existed in mm. uh, the civil rights movement. We are very leaderful. And people around the country and around the world are the ones who are who are really making the change on the ground every single day. And you know, I'm one of you know, thousands of, of people who are part of the struggle. And on a day-to-day, -day, what I do in order to keep myself sane is engage in real self-care. And, and I'm really unapologetic about it these days. Um, I do what I can to uh, be in motion with my body because I have some long-term chronic health issues. So I'm doing what I can there. Um, I do my Pilates, I pray, I meditate. Um, I'm in community and, and talk with my family almost every day now because that gives me a lot of joy and um, allows me to feel connected and resilient. And then I also am, am very diligent about connecting with our, our comrades, our colleagues, 
um, around the world. And that keeps me really deeply inspired um, and encouraged to continue the work that I'm involved with because I see the kinds of sacrifices um, and gains that they too are making. Well, I think, you know, on that, on that positive note, I'd hope. Um, well, thank you so much. I, I wish we had so much more time. We'll just have to bring you back, perhaps. Um, but thank you for, for taking the time to, to speak with me today and just to, you know, give us a little bit of what it's been like um, for you uh, during, during this time. Um, and I want to thank everybody for, for tuning in. Uh, and if you join us tomorrow at 3 p.m., my colleague, Robert Costa, will speak with Governor Jared Paulus about the latest coronavirus updates in Colorado. And as always, you can find out more about upcoming Washington Post Live interviews and register to watch at WashingtonPostLive.com. Once again, I'm Karen Atia, and thanks for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.